Do New Hampshire's business tax cuts really make a difference to our economy? What policies can actually move the needle on economic prosperity? We delve into these questions and so much more with Phil Sletton from the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Matt Mowry, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. And this week, we are welcoming back Phil Sletton, Research Director at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. We promised back in February of this year when our listeners first met Phil that we would follow up with what was at the time a proposed state budget that was being crafted. Well, we now have an approved state budget and Phil is back to dig a little deeper. Phil, we've got about a half hour with our listeners as usual, so what should we cover? Well, thank you very much for having me back. It's always great to come uh, here and talk about the state budget, state finances, the state economy. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thanks again. for doing it. You're the man. We need you. Happy to, happy to, <laughs> I don't learn these things to keep them to myself. So thank you for, thank you for being interested. Um, so one of the most important things to know about the state budget is that policymakers were really focused on supporting the workforce uh, over this next two-year period. Again, we're talking about a two-year state budget that formally began July 1st of 2023 and lasts through the middle of, or through the end of June 2025. And over that time period, it appropriated about $15.2 billion. And a lot of the additional appropriations that the legislature added in were focused on workforce supports. And when I say workforce supports, the primary areas were in, at least in the short term, were around child care and housing. And there were additional uh, supports focused on uh, the health care workforce, Medicaid supports for individuals in the state, as well as the uh, health care workers who rely on Medicaid reimbursements. And longer term, we see increased funding for education, both the public school system, K through 12 education, and for higher education. So there were some additional um, investments that the legislature made in those areas. So broadly speaking, and I'm happy to dive into any of those, but broadly speaking, those were some of the key places that the legislature decided to devote funds to support the state's workforce. So let's talk about the giant suffocating elephant in the room of housing. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) That has been the big topic in New Hampshire. Uh, We don't have enough workforce housing. Uh, Housing has been very restrictive in terms of being able to recruit new employees. Uh, It's been the bane of both uh, residents of New Hampshire as well as employers trying to attract uh, workers to New Hampshire. What did the legislature do in response to this in its state budget? Right, and I'll provide two more numbers just to characterize the the constraint on the housing front a little bit more. Um, One is the median home sale price statewide in June. Uh, Originally was reported as $495,000 by the New Hampshire Association of Realtors. The revised number, I don't know if you saw it, $499,450. So we're pretty solidly talking about half a million dollars to buy a home in New Hampshire in June of 2023. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's, and that price compares to, if we go back to like March of 2017, it was about $244,000. So we're talking about a really significant increase. Also on the rental market side, the New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority um, identified that the median uh, monthly rent and utilities for a two bedroom apartment, 
$1,763. And that's every month, right? So uh, that's eating into a lot of household budgets. That means that households are paying really significant portions of their income, whether they're renting or purchasing. Because remember, there's also these interest rates on mortgages, right, that have gone up over the last year. Um, Really significant portions of their income on housing. So the legislature actually made investments in four key areas. One is they put additional money, about $25 million, to the Affordable Housing Fund. This is administered by the New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority, is designed to support grants and loans for the construction or rehabilitation of households, uh, pardon me, of housing for uh, with a particular focus on households with low and moderate incomes. So that's an existing fund that we had that the legislature deploy, deployed additional dollars to. They also set aside more dollars for the Invest NH fund. And this is the uh, this is uh, the first state dollars that have been going towards the governor's um, $100 million fund that was, uh, you, that was funded with American Rescue Plan Act dollars. So these are federal dollars that the state could deploy flexibly. The uh, the these are the first state dollars to go into that fund that can be deployed even more flexibly because they're state dollars. And the third area is for housing shelter programs targeted at combating homelessness in the state. That was $10 million the legislature put in. Um, that obviously has a little bit more of an immediate on-the-ground effect. Uh, and then the fourth is what's called, uh, in shorthand, the Housing Champions Program, which the legislature established and funded with five and a quarter million dollars. That's designed to provide incentives for municipalities to really make their communities more workforce housing friendly um, and support both housing growth and um, and some certain strategies for development of housing in those communities. And for some historical context here. These efforts that are being made um, by the state government now to address the housing crisis, how does this fall in terms of their past efforts? Yeah, a great question. So uh, until about, you know, three budget cycles ago, the state budget would rarely contribute any funds to the affordable housing fund, for example, right? Uh, There would be um, uh, one-time appropriations of relatively small amounts of money. Over the last several budget cycles, and even in between, we've been running surpluses, uh, the legislature has devoted tens of millions of dollars to the Affordable Housing Fund. This $25 million contribution is not out of line with what we've seen in the past. And the real estate transfer tax, now as of um, two budgets ago, has a dedicated $5 million a year contribution. So everything I'm talking about here is on top of that. So this is a significant infusion into the Affordable Housing Fund relative to what we've seen in the past. There has not always been, by any means, this much of an appropriation for, uh, or an additional appropriation, I should say, for um, uh, housing shelter programs. And uh, the Invest in H Fund didn't exist until uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, and the Housing Champions Program is a new program. So this is uh, this is a multi-pronged approach that the legislature has deployed in this state budget. And in the context of recent state budgets, it's quite a bit. That being said, this is a massive problem that is a decade and a half in the making. Uh, this state budget isn't going to fix it, right? This is there. We've been underbuilding housing in New Hampshire relative to what the demand is and the need is uh, for a long time, uh, and since really, since really the Great Recession or the years before the Great Recession, when the uh, housing boom of the early two thousands started to fade away. Now. What does this mean going forward? You know, this sounds like if, it, if it's safe to say, this is a good start, as it were, to addressing our crisis. But, you know, in two years, we're going to be um, undertaking another budget. There will be someone else in the governor's seat. Uh, 
Um, as Kristen Nunes made clear, he's not running again. And we have a really large legislature. So who knows in two years what kind of turnover we're going to see and who's going to be in and out. So what does that mean in terms of if this is a good start, what level of commitment does the state need to make in terms of financially in future state budgets? And are there other policy levers they're going to have to consider? And that's a great question. Uh, I think what's going to inform the answer to that question is how well communities respond and how um, intensely communities respond to these incentives that are set up to make communities more housing friendly and more housing development friendly. Because if if communities respond to those incentives, both through the Invest in H program and the Housing Champions program, in a way that leads to more housing development at the community level in a more robust manner than we've seen. Um, and when, I talk, when I'm thinking about communities, I'm thinking about cities and towns, right? I'm thinking about um, how does a developer navigate local zoning, right? And what does local zoning permit? Uh, how does the financing line up for uh, a set of affordable housing units or units that are designed to be affordable for folks with lower and moder- uh, more moderate incomes? Those, I, I think that seeing how these investments work and seeing how particularly those incentive structures for communities work is going to really inform what more needs to be done in the next budget cycle and how does it need to be done. Um, those are the questions I would be asking going in. That being said, this problem is large enough and, as we noted, not uh, not uh, um, it w- developed over a long period of time. It's not one that's going to go away with this budget cycle. I'm sure additional contributions to the Affordable Housing Fund, for example, or um, the Housing Champions Program, which was originally funded by the state Senate at $29 million in their uh, bill that was a standalone bill, went down to $5 million in the state budget as was finally passed. There's room for expansion, likely, in a lot of these programs if the money that goes in appears to be having an effect. Again, this is a big problem, so it's going to be hard to measure exactly what the effect is, but the uh, government is, the state government is certainly interested in finding out what are the feedback, what's the return on investment from these dollars. So as we move from the housing crisis that has affected our workforce, let's move on to the other crisis that has been in our state building for years, the child care crisis, which really came to head during the pandemic. Uh, for years, the industry has been sounding the alarms that there just isn't enough um, investment being made in child care. Uh, it's tough to keep workers because of the low pay. Um, the high cost of running child care has been an impediment for more child care opening up. And that for a lot uh, has got, that, that has been a barrier for some people entering the workforce because the choice is either I'm paying a lot of my salary to get, put my child in childcare while I work, where I could just stay home and not spend all that money, and it's kind of a wash. So it seems like this has been something that has finally come to head in our state budget as well. Can you talk about what has prompted more attention? Um, beyond what I've talked about, into the child care situation and how the state budget is responding to that. Sure, and I'll offer up, as I did with housing, one more number to sort of characterize the magnitude of of the child care, con- the constraint that child care is putting on the workforce. Um, if we look at uh, what's roughly monthly survey data over the last year and take an average, then about uh, 15,900 adults in New Hampshire reported that they were not engaged in the labor force, so they weren't working or seeking work because they were caring for a child who was not in childcare or not in school, right? So 15,900 is that number. Uh, The most recent 
uh, unemployment rate figures came out for July, and those preliminary numbers estimate that 13,100 people are in the state and uh, who are unemployed, meaning they're not currently working, but they're looking for work. So the number of people who are not working because they are providing childcare is larger than the number of people who are looking for work and don't actively have a job right now, right? So if we were to address some of that childcare challenge, that means that not all 15,900 of those people would come into labor force, you know, overnight, and and some of them may be choosing to remain out of the labor force, um, but answering the survey in that manner. However, that would likely be a pretty big infusion of people into the economy um, who are in the labor market then looking for work. So that's the sort of thing that employers are probably quite interested in when it comes to uh, when it comes to understanding what is the size of this child care constraint on the economy. The, uh, the state budget itself did two primary things when it came to child care. One is a $15 million infusion of cash into chi- to child care centers for recruitment and retention of workforce. And that could be uh, for uh, training and education, for paid time off, for health coverage, for their employees, for example. Um, so that's $15 million right off the bat. A key part that the a key change that the state budget made as well to the um, to child care policy in the state is who's eligible for public subsidies, who's eligible for help affording child care. They're called child care scholarships, and in under prior policy, prior to the state budget, a family of three, so for example, two adults and one child, or could be one one adult and two children, um, in 2022 would have had to have incomes below about $50,000 to access any form of child care scholarship assistance. Post the state budget, in, in with the current state budget in effect, that same family would be able to earn up to $86,000 to get some form of child care assistance. So this is a very significant increase in the number of families, the number of households that are eligible for this public assistance for these child care scholarships. Of course, people have to apply for them and you know engage in, in the program to be able to receive that, but that means that many more families will get help affording child care. On the child care center side, those child care um, scholarship kids the state also subsidizes the child care centers or the providers that are uh, serving those child care scholarship children. And that subsidy has also been boosted by the state budget. So these are really significant expansions in the low and moderate income support for child care. And so uh, we were in a crisis situation before the pandemic. What did the pandemic do that um, how did it exacerbate this issue? Yeah, so um, according to data from the State Department of Health and Human Services, in 2019, they, the formal child care settings were meeting about 60% of the need, right? So we're already, already 40% of the estimated child care need in the state was not being met by a licensed child care setting. Uh, so it could be, you know, someone's neighbor, someone's friend, someone not in the workforce, right? That would be that would be part of the the constellation of other services. But um, licensed childcare settings were already falling short. October 2020, the estimate was 50 percent, right? So you lost that 10 percent of you you fell short of 10 percent more of the need um, in that 2019 to October 2020 time period. Um, Child care, set, child care centers and child care providers like other entities in the state have had trouble, have reported trouble employing 
uh, people because they haven't been able to find the workers. And with a 1.7% unemployment rate in um, uh, in uh, July of 2023, it hasn't gotten easier. That unemployment rate has been dropping over the course of this year in the preliminary data we have so far. So uh, so the the challenges that child care centers are facing in in finding people to employ, especially when you know wages may be quite a bit more limited because they aren't getting the uh, infusions of resources either because they can't charge parents uh, you know the true cost or because they aren't getting the support um, on the public sector side from the state. That's that's a challenge. Uh, that childcare centers are facing like all other employers. And it's a particular challenge because the market for childcare doesn't function quite in the same way that other markets do because of the constrained ability of parents to pay. Now, in New Hampshire, we're always on that two-year cycle. We have a two-year budget. We have, you know, our legislatures being elected every two years. Um, it's a short cycle. Um Will we be able to see whether or not these policies around childcare and housing are effective in time for this next round? Um, will we have, do you think, sufficient data points for the legislature to make the decisions they're going to be forced to make at that point? I think there's a higher likelihood for childcare than there is for housing. Uh, and part of the reason for that is the uh, child care services are services, right? It, you can hire additional people, you can add additional slots uh, for uh, for available child care settings. Uh, that can happen a little faster than the capital intensive housing uh, construction that would be needed to add housing units. Did we add more housing in this time period? There's a lot of not only time, additional time to uh, to build a house or build housing units as opposed to hiring a person, but also there's a lot of supply chain constraints, including labor constraints on the housing construction side. And that likely takes a little bit more time to work through. Now, that's part of the reason why the Housing Champions Program and some portions of the Invest in H program are particularly interesting because that's looking for policy changes at the local level that would enable more housing or could enable more housing to be constructed. So um, yes, these are because these are big systemic challenges, it's going to take time to get to unpack what are the actual impacts. Uh, but there are data collection opportunities that the state has to be able to try and understand that a little bit more on both those ends. We'll be right back. McLean Middleton is a full-service law firm with over 100 attorneys and 25 paralegals throughout its five offices in Manchester, Concord, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Woburn in Boston, Massachusetts. For over 100 years, they've been providing exceptional legal services to businesses, individuals, and nonprofit organizations across the region. Visit McLean.com for a complete list of practice areas and attorneys. We are back with Phil Sletton, Research Director at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. Thanks for again for being with us. And let's continue the conversation around state budget and uh, the sort of uh, where we are at right now here in 23. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I do want to note as a workforce support as well, and this is a workforce support for a particular sector, but it is the uh, highest employment sector the state has, at least the healthcare and social assistance side. And this is the Medicaid reimbursement rates that were part of the state budget as well. Um, uh, healthcare providers, the healthcare industry is a big part of the New Hampshire economy, and uh, healthcare providers who are um, uh, giving care to people who are enrolled in Medicaid would receive 
revenue through the state through Medicaid reimbursement rates. Those were boosted substantially in the state budget and both in a targeted fashion in particular for certain services. Um, but also there's a general workforce support that the, the current state budget or the new state budget enacted, which is reauthorizing Medicaid expansion for another seven years. And as a reminder, this is a program that supports uh, people who have low incomes. So this is below 138% of the federal poverty guidelines. So we're talking about not very much money, you know, maybe $16,000 for a single adult, for example, um, over the course of a year. Uh, we're, though that uh, program, other you know, data from other states suggests, uh, survey data from other states suggests that that program is a significant workforce support, helps enable people to be employed, remain employed, be healthier at work. Um, and it is also an important workforce support if we're talking about seasonal economies where people may have their incomes vary quite a bit over the course of a year. So both the infusion of resources through the Medicaid program to medical providers and the direct um, expansions of Medicaid beyond just the what we call the Medicaid expansion or grant advantage program um, to other more selective Medicaid expansions that were included in the state budget for particular services, that's also a workforce support because it means that healthcare providers can attract and retain more employees, um, and those employees are then more likely to be able to afford housing and childcare in the state, for example. Um, and uh, it also helps... Um, the people themselves who may have precarious health fi uh, situations or precarious financial situations or a combination of both to access health services. Another big area has been higher education. I mean, it's we have a notorious reputation in the state for having one of the highest costs for um, our state schools, um, the, our students leaving with a high debt load. Um, and that means that we have a higher percentage of students who are leaving the state for their education. And as we know, once you leave, it's tougher to get people back. Um, and just as an anecdote, as, as an example, I wrote about this, I think, back in June that my niece uh, got accepted several colleges, including UNH. She's going into veterinarian um, medicine. Uh, she is, as we speak, in uh, school in Pennsylvania because with the uh, amount of um, scholarship they were able to provide, it was so much lower to go to school out of state than to go to UNH. Um, and hers is not an unusual story. So can you talk about how... What the state budget has, how the state budget has treated higher education historically in New Hampshire, and what changed in this budget? Yeah, so uh, in the Great Recession, so rewind to you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Um, during the Great Recession, um, the state budget had uh, set aside an appropriation of for the university system was about a hundred million dollars, and the community college system was budgeted a little bit differently, but it was a substantially smaller amount of funds. Um, in the fiscal year's 2012-2013 state budget, that amount was reduced roughly in half for the university system. And since then, the university system has not gotten back to those levels of funding in terms of the dollars flowing from the state to the university system. Um, and I do want to note that the university system and the community college system basically the university system and the community college system basically operate outside of the state budget, but they receive a grant through the state budget. So not every line item in the university system is unpacked in the state budget. This is just the appropriation from the state budget to the university system or to the community college system. 
those amounts have been recovering over time and the community college system is back to a higher level than probably they were before. I say probably because it was budgeted a little bit differently then. But in terms of general fund appropriations, the community college system has um, has gotten back to above where it was before. Uh, the university system, though, is still a tiny bit below uh, where the, that $100 million um, in terms of the general operating funds it received back uh, 12 years ago, right, in the, in the state budget. That is also not adjusted for inflation, right? And we know that the education costs have gone up since then. So the amount of dollars that the state provides to the university system, which helps offset tuition for in-state students, that's one of its um, not explicit but expected purposes, that is uh, that amount has been boosted uh, over time in state budgets. It is still only right about where it was um, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and that's not adjusting for inflation. So it's a lower amount in terms of the actual education that it can buy or that it can subsidize. Uh, but the current state budget and prior state, a couple prior, the last few state budgets, I should say, um, has steadily boosted that amount and given more funding to the um, university system and community college system for particular projects, for particular initiatives, uh, whether it's um, uh, healthcare workforce support, right? You know, we, we want more nursing students, for example. Um, there are particular set-asides that the state budget has made for those. This is, of course, a long-term investment in our workforce because, as your story characterized, being able to keep students in the state, um, at least in the near term, means they are more likely to stay in the state. Um, some students leave and then come back, uh, and New Hampshire has historically been attractive to people from their late 20s to their early 40s. That being said, there's not a lot of housing opportunity for folks to move back to New Hampshire and find it affordable relative to other places. So if education is an uphill climb in terms of affordability, and housing is too, making it harder to come back, uh, if you haven't already established housing, then you know this is this is the way in which all of these a lot of these programs in the state budget are either directly or indirectly workforce supports. So let's talk about the other side. We've talked about the costs and, and some of the the ways the the legislature is addressing some of the these issues that we faced. But that takes money. Um, so let's talk about that revenue side. Can you break down you know where most of our state revenue comes from? And then let's get into a recent study that's gotten some attention that uh, New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute has done around our business tax cuts and whether or not they have led to a boon here in the state. Sure. So the New Hampshire state government, and uh, as a reminder, when I'm talking about state government, I'm not talking about state and local government combined. If I'm talking about that combined, then more than half of the revenue comes from property taxes. Local property taxes are, um, I should say, more than half of the tax revenue that's collected at the state and local level in New Hampshire. At the state level, there are property taxes, but they are relatively small compared to what we see at the local level. The state government's largest tax revenue source is the business profits tax. That's the largest tax revenue source by a factor of two. Um, the meals and rentals tax, which you all pay when you go out to eat, you pay 8.5% on your bill, um, and people who are coming to visit the state and renting a hotel room and renting a car, they pay meals and rentals tax. That's also one of the largest tax revenue sources the state has, although it's quite a bit smaller than the business profits tax. Um, the business enterprise tax is another tax the state has on businesses, but it's very different. It's not on profits. It's not your typical state corporate income tax. It's basically on compensation and interest and dividends paid by entities, um, by businesses that are taxable under it. 
Um, the uh, real estate transfer tax is on purchasing mostly homes, but also commercial properties subject to the real estate transfer tax. Um, the interest and dividends tax, which is being phased out under the current uh, state budget, actually phased out faster by the new state budget. Um, that's on un- that's on um, passive income collected from wealth, so usually stock ownership and um, uh, an interest or interest payments made to an individual. Uh, there's also, but we're getting to be relatively small parts of the state revenue stream now. The tobacco tax, uh, so that's a a relatively large one, although uh, declining in size over time, on mostly on cigarettes, but also certain other tobacco products. Um, And uh, the insurance premium tax, levied against insurance companies. Uh, There's a utility property tax, uh, which is only on utilities, as you might guess from the name. Uh, And a a collection of other ones, but those are the primary drivers of revenue. And really where most of the revenue swings happen from year to year is in the business taxes. The two business taxes are more than a quarter of the revenue collected by the general and education trust funds. I should also say we also tax gasoline and diesel, um, but that goes to a different fund, still part of the state budget, but not what people are typically thinking of when they're thinking of state revenues and are we generating a surplus or not. Um, Those funds are separate and set aside for particular purposes related to highways. And so uh, Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute recently did a study on the fact that there's been, you know, we've had significant cuts to the business taxes in the state. Um, We have seen um, a boon in our economy, um, especially over these pandemic years, and whether or not there was a a correlation. What were your findings? Yeah, and this is an important, because of that structure that we have now in in New Hampshire, we're actually more than twice as reliant as a percentage of our state tax revenue on corporate taxes than any other state in the country. So this is a really important question for us in a way it's not, um, not, it doesn't have the same consequence for other states necessarily. Um, we really wanted to understand why have business tax revenues gone up so much in recent years. And between state fiscal years 2015 and 2022, revenues from the business taxes combined, the business profits and business enterprise taxes, have gone up 118%, right? More than doubled. And for two key state revenue sources, that's a really significant uh, increase in revenue. And part of the reason why we've seen state budget surpluses. And as a reminder, when I say surplus, I'm saying over revenue, over the amount of revenue expected, right, in the state budget plan. So uh, we wanted to understand what are the reasons why that's gone up? And is it because we've been reducing tax rates? Because in 2016, 2018, 2019, 2021, and 2022, the, um, or uh, pardon me, 2022 and 2023, um, the uh, either the business profits or the business enterprise tax rates were reduced. So was that the cause, right? Were those tax rate reductions leading to more economic growth, attracting more businesses to New Hampshire, leading to more business growth in New Hampshire? And if that's the cause, that's important for us to know because that's then a key part of our fiscal policy success in the last uh, half decade. Um, We did not find evidence that there was a uh, there was an increase in revenue because of those tax rate reductions. Um, and I can walk through why, some of the reasons, some of the data that we used to support that conclusion. But basically, we were then able to calculate what were the, what was the lost revenue associated from those tax rate reductions because the both the national evidence and the evidence we see from other states and the economic evidence that we see in New Hampshire suggests that there's not a relationship uh, that's strong enough to explain that rise in business tax revenues that we've seen. 
it did receive some pushback um, from some realms uh, and criticism that, um, you know, that the, the conclusions that were reach, reached are predicated on the, the assumption that the goal would be to, you know, give the state more money through these tax revenues and that, you know, what the criticism was that, um, you know, these tax cuts are also meant to put more money back into business owners' pockets, that the state shouldn't be in there to make money, that, you know, the that, you know, the fiscally responsible way government should act is to um, conserve the tax burden on its citizens. How do you react to the criticism that was received and, and what you're, and, and what it, what you were trying to convey in your findings? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that some of the interpretation has been, it's been interesting to see the mix of interpretations of, of the information that's, it's in the report. Um, I, I think that the, key thing to identify is if your goal is stimulating the economy, right? If you are a policymaker and your goal is stimulating the economy, then some of the things that we see in this research is that there's likely more effective ways to do it per tax dollar that you use, or, or per dollar of revenue that you c- could use. Um, if that dollar is used for a corporate tax rate reduction, uh, then that's probably less economically stimulative than some other forms of um, either programs or tax cuts that um, are targeted at, uh, that are more targeted than a corporate tax rate reduction. So for example, if we look at uh, analysis from Moody's Analytics, uh, so private um, Wall Street uh, oriented firm that does um, economic analysis, a corporate tax rate reduction uh, was estimated to bring back for every dollar you devote to that would bring back 32 cents in economic growth. And this is based on 2021. And these are federal, this is uh, federal modeling. Um, so 32 cents for every dollar you invest. If you were to invest it in uh, food assistance through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, so this is providing resources to people for people to buy food in their local grocery store, that would be $1.61 of economic growth for every dollar you invest. Those numbers change depending on what the economy looks like, but that is, Moody's did this analysis for 2009, 2015, and 2021, and it's relatively steady, right? It's, you're talking about $1.50, and that, and they aren't the only ones that have done this. It's also uh, from the U.S. Congressional Budget Office looking at all the research out there trying to estimate um, we see that it's you know you get a dollar fifty back for e- roughly for every dollar you invest in food assistance that might swing from a dollar twenty five to a dollar seventy five but about a dollar fifty uh, whereas for a corporate tax rate reduction it's about thirty thirty two cents right so uh, which makes some sense because if you are to uh, if you were to provide a dollar to a household with particularly low incomes versus a dollar to a business that may already be making a profit or be a large multinational business that could deploy that profit to, for example, shareholders who may be anywhere in the world, uh, then it makes more sense that the dollar that go, that goes to a, a family with low incomes uh, in New, a family with low income in New Hampshire would get circulated into the economy faster. Right, probably would be spent at your local grocery store. We know that our business profits tax, more than half of the revenue in our state business profits tax comes from entities that file their taxes in a way that indicates they have a significant overseas component, right? So in their business, in their combined business entity, a portion of that business is primarily overseas. 
that suggests that probably not all the shareholders who would benefit from that business profits tax rate reduction are in New Hampshire. Some of them may be overseas, which means that that dollar of reduced tax revenue likely leaves the state. We, we don't know if it leaves the state. We can't know that from, from the information that we have uh, that's publicly available. But it's more likely than someone who, for example, is receiving food assistance or unemployment compensation or an earned income tax credit um, uh, tax reduction uh, or child tax credit uh, uh, benefit um, that's likely spending those dollars in the local economy in New Hampshire. Well, I think we could obviously go on further. There's so much to unpack <laughs> sure in the could. state budget. But appreciate you coming and sharing these overviews of the impact of, uh, of the state budget and its effects for this uh, coming biannual uh, season we're entering. Uh, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's always fun. Phil, it's always a pleasure. And if folks are interested in uh, seeing some of these reports, they can go to nhfpi.org, the New Hampshire Fiscal Policies uh, website. And uh, you've got a little conference coming up in October, the Budget and Policy Conference happening on October 16th that folks could attend as well if they want to geek out on more numbers with you. Yes, absolutely. I and, love and it. Please, if you have the free time, come and attend. Beautiful. Thank you so much again for being with us. Phil Sletton is Research Director at New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.